0: Well, good evening, welcome everybody here in the room and those of you online joining us. Welcome back to our series on the apocalypse, the study of the book of Revelation. Just some housekeeping as we do every lesson. This is the number, it's on your handouts, but this is the number you can text questions during class. Try to answer as many questions as we can. If something's not clear, by all means, just text a question in. We also sometimes have questions that uh, wanna go really deeper on. And so we record a podcast and it airs on Friday at SoWeSpeak.com. So if you're interested in going deeper on some questions, we'll do that on Fridays. So I'm anxious to jump in since we are at Armageddon this week. The world doesn't exactly end, but it doesn't go well. So let me say a prayer and we'll jump right in. Lord, thank you for the privilege that we have to come together, study your word. I pray that it would engage our minds. It would permeate our hearts and it would find its way out through our deeds and our actions and our worldview. Lord, I thank you for the blessings you've given to us. But in any group this size, Lord, we have cares and concerns and we lay them down before you. And I pray for your presence, for all those who are anxious, all those who are grieving, those who need healing. I pray that you would be near to them in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you remember where we were, we are in the tribulation, which is basically chapters four through 19. There are 22 chapters in the book of Revelation. Chapters four through 19 are what are called the tribulation. So if you believe it's happening in the future, a futurist view of this book, you will think of that as a seven-year period in the future. And if you are a historicist, you think it's actually a roadmap of history. And we've talked about the four views. But all of those views come together in chapter 19 because the tribulation is over. And those views are basically the distinguishing factors. When will all these things happen that are talked about in chapters four through 19? So we've had seven seals that have been opened and by Jesus and each one brought judgment on the earth judgment on evil on the earth on satan on antichrist the false prophet and on all those who follow them and we had seven trumpets being blown and that was seven judgments that came again on the earth and then finally six bowls that were poured out six we call them plagues but they're think of it six catastrophes Six judgments of catastrophic proportion. That would be the great way to think about what those bowls actually mean. And so that has happened on the earth. Well, when you finish that in chapter 16, we left the Antichrist gathering all the kings of the earth to go fight against God for a great and final battle. Chapter 17 and 18 are just sort of a a timeout And they talk about this vision. This is what we spoke about in our last lesson, so I won't go all the way back over it. But you have this image of a woman who has a title, Babylon, the mother of of prostitutes. And meaning this in a very spiritual sense and it's standing for something, but this woman is riding on the Antichrist, whose whose image is a beast with seven heads and 10 horns and and great power. So you, you get this imagery, this is very normal in apocalyptic style of literature to communicate ideas to us. And so the ideas are that you have the Antichrist who is establishing world power, is somehow in league. And again, this is not the false prophet, this is sort of some entity that is evangelizing, if you will, for the Antichrist. Now, the historicists say this is the papal system, that the Pope is the Antichrist. This is primarily, think of the reformers in the 1500s, and they said the papacy, the institution of the Pope, is trying to replace God. You know, the ability to forgive sins, the ability to speak ex cathedra. In other words, that's what the historicist uh, reformers. Thought, and they thought that this woman was the papal system that was out there encouraging and sometimes even persecuting people to uh, become under the uh, papal domination. So that was their view. Uh, futurists believe that this woman represents, because her name is Babylon, and the way she's described later, you also get the idea of Rome, that the Antichrist is going to rule from a revived Roman empire or maybe from Babylon, which today is Baghdad in Iraq, and so that the Antichrist's physical reign and power will be headquartered in some ways there. That's another way to think about what could this woman be. And then a symbolic view says, this woman represents the world system that tries to squeeze everybody into it. In other words, you need to get in line, or you'll get persecuted. So the secular world system. But whatever you think of it, it basically is being destroyed. That God is executing judgment on the Antichrist and on the world system that supports the Antichrist. So we read uh, at about the destruction it's fallen fallen is babylon the great and so chapter 19 which is the very end of the tribulation you will see the second coming of jesus in chapter 19 so all of those four views come together here and say because everybody believes in the second coming of jesus christ so that's what's going to happen in chapter 19 but as it opens it says this i heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out hallelujah salvation and glory and power i want you to count these adjectives salvation and glory and power the number three is a divine number you'll typically see three adjectives applied to god just to remind you that this is the divinity that we're talking about for his judgments are true and just he has judged the great prostitute And we talked last time about the idea of sexual immorality and unfaithfulness to God by chasing after other gods or idols are often put together in Old Testament, New Testament. Undoubtedly here, it may be talking about both, but it's certainly talking about uh, unfaithfulness to God. And has avenged on her the blood of his servants. So all the people that she has persecuted, that this world system or whatever has persecuted, judgment has come. And they cried again, hallelujah, the smoke from the destruction of her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne. I wanna remind you, we're here at the end of the tribulation, chapter 19. You met the four living creatures, the 24 elders and the throne room at the beginning in chapter four. In fact, you get this beautiful vision of the throne room in chapter four of God and his servants and the angelic hosts and everything that has happened since then emanates from there. So you see the antichrist persecuting Christians and you see war on earth and you see the kings of the earth coming together and you see world domination. But nowhere in this narrative, and I just want to point this out to you, nowhere in this story is Satan calling the shots. Nowhere in this story do you say, and so over in Hades, Satan and his privy council decided that they were gonna do this or they were going to do that. Everything that's happening, every judgment that comes, comes from that throne room. God is sovereign, and that's one of the key messages of the book of Revelation, because it doesn't feel that way sometimes. When the Christians in the past have suffered persecution or when you are oppressed in various ways, we need to know and need to remember And every single chapter of the book of Revelation reminds us, God is actually the one calling the shots. Evil things are happening and God will deal with it. In fact, he's going to deal with it tonight. But my point is that God is sovereign and Christians need to hear it. We need to hear that. So this is the same image that you saw. It's like, we call it, uh, it's a literary device, it's called bookends. And so you start with the throne room and you go through all these happenings and just as you're winding up, you come all the way back to where you started. And so you start in the throne room and you end in the throne room. And so they said again, amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Uh, This is just a tidbit for you. This word hallelujah is a Hebrew word and it means praise you the Lord or praise the Lord. Hallelujah means praise the Lord. It's a Hebrew word. It only appears in the New Testament four times and they're all in this chapter. So I know we we see that word, you'll see it all the time in the Old Testament, all over the Psalms. The idea is praise the Lord, praise God. But in the New Testament, that word only shows up four times and it's all in this chapter. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and the sound of many mighty peals of thunder crying out hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. So he's, he's seeing and hearing what's happening in heaven. This is in the throne room. And he's hearing this loud voice like water, like earthquakes shouting, the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her, given to her, to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen, remember in the book of Revelation, clothes are character. If you have fine linen, white, beautiful clothes, that speaks of righteousness, a right relationship with God. If you have filthy clothes, that means that you do not have a righteous relationship with God. If you're naked, That's really bad. That says you have nothing. Well, I mean, generally speaking, that's probably bad. You get arrested, but it means, symbolically, that you have no relationship whatsoever with God. So here's the bride of Christ in fine linen, and the fine linen are the righteous deeds of the saints. Who are the saints? All that word means is the holy people and that is every single Christ follower is called a saint all over the New Testament. That word is not used in a a Catholic sense of someone who has been elevated to be, you know, come saint so-and-so or saint so-and-so. That word in the New Testament always is just talking about Christ followers, that you have been set apart, you become holy because you have died to yourself and you follow Christ, you are the saints. So who is this bride of Christ? The church, meaning the the collection of all the people who have followed Christ, all the saints, and the bride has been clothed in a beautiful white wedding dress. Well, what does that imagery mean? These are the righteous acts of all of the Christ followers, all their faithful, every one of your faithful acts. Every time you are faithful to Christ, that is portrayed here in the sense of being putting on pure white linen clothing. So that's the imagery here. So we're talking about the marriage of the lamb, Christ and his bride, the church. In Jesus' ministry, I wanna go back now to the New Testament and I want you to to just trace a little bit of this imagery of Christ and the church. And when I say church, I mean all those who are following Jesus Christ. So all of the faithful saints, all of the faithful followers of Christ throughout all of time are are going to be the bride of Christ. This is the metaphor that's used to express the relationship between Jesus and his church. Here's a passage in Ephesians 5 that's about husbands and wives, but it's actually about Christ and the church. Listen, and the idea of husbands and wives, marriage is modeled after the love of Christ for the church and the faithfulness of the church to Christ. Here's what Paul says to the Christians in Ephesus. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? So that he might sanctify her. All sanctify means is make her holy. So that he might make her holy, having cleansed her by the washing of water, baptism, with the word, the gospel, the truth, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without any blemish or spot or stain. What is this talking about? In Revelation, it talks about clothing, that the saints are clothed in pure white linen. Here, he's talking about Jesus is going to forgive our sins and it's as though we have no stain, no blot, no blemish. We're pure before him because he has washed us. He who, uh, and he says, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. And then he says, cherish your wives just as Christ does the church. Care for her, uh, give yourself for her, be self-sacrificing. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Listen to what he says. This is a profound mystery. I'm telling you that it refers to Christ and the church. But it also, here's the however, it also applies to your marriage in a smaller way. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So what Paul is doing in Ephesians is telling you a cosmic truth. And he's saying, and by the way, one way to apply this truth is in your marriage. And so you get the sense of the intimacy between Christ and the church. And so what he's talking about here, we're actually seeing happen in Revelation chapter 19. Here's another verse in John 14. This is Jesus speaking, and he's about to, John 14 is the last day of Jesus' life. 14, 15, 16 is Jesus speaking teaching his disciples in the upper room the day before he's going to be crucified and so he's going to leave he said don't let your hearts be troubled you believe in God believe also in me in my father's house are many rooms if it were not so I would have told you uh, Would I have told you I go to prepare a place for you and if I go and prepare a place I will come again and I will take you to myself so you may be where I am this is based on a custom of marriage, and I'll say this quickly because I think many of you may know, but the way marriages worked in that age and what this idea of preparing a room means is that when a young man, young woman wanted to be married and it was agreed, they would become betrothed, like an engagement on steroids, right? And so yes, you two are gonna get married. And uh, in fact, you kind of are, but you go, each go to your own home and the way it worked is they lived in extended family dwellings. And so the dad and the son begin to add on a room to their house. And that's gonna be where they live. There was a common kitchen and it was, a, it was an extended family dwelling called an insula. And so they would begin to build on a room. And so they begin to build and build. And the son, you know, he gets about halfway done and he goes, this is good enough, I wanna get married. And, but you couldn't get married until the father said it was time to go get married. This is why Jesus says, no one knows the day or the hour that I'm gonna return except the father. When things are ready, then I will come for my bride. And that's what happened. When they finished the room and the dad said, it's ready. He and his groomsmen would have a parade and they would sing and they would go to the bride's house and she would be waiting. And so she would be ready with her bridesmaids and then they would have a wedding. And they would have a wedding feast, typically lasting several days of just festivities and celebrating this marriage. So that's the way it worked then. Jesus is playing this self out too. I mean, think about it. He says, no one knows the day or the hour. He said, I'm going to prepare a place for you, not in a house, in heaven. And I'm gonna bring you to be with me. In other words, we'll be married, we'll be joined forever, right? You see how he's using these ideas and you see it all over scripture. And that's why Jesus doesn't know when the second coming will be because the Father decides when the time is ready. And so when the time is ready, Jesus comes for his bride who has adorned herself and is waiting faithfully for him to come. Does that, it just clicks, doesn't it? You realize that's what we're doing. We are the bride of Christ and we are faithfully waiting until the time is right and Jesus comes to take us to be with him. Oh no, what if we're dead? You remember what Paul says? Oh, the dead in Christ will rise in an instant to meet Jesus in the air. It doesn't matter if it happens after our lifetime. We will, the next thing we see will be the bridegroom. Jesus come to take us home with him to heaven. So that's what he's saying here. And so this is Jesus uh, at the first coming talking about this so we matter and here's a really interesting point we matter as much to jesus as a beloved and cherished spouse actually more but in our terms human terms that's a great way to think about it jesus is never going to desert us he is coming for us and so in revelation chapter 19 why what how do they talk about the second coming of christ the lamb's coming to get married Jesus is coming to get married. It's gonna be the marriage of the lamb. It's carrying on this intimate metaphor. One more metaphor that the scriptures use. Jesus also used this idea when he's talking to his disciples, again in John 14, as he's getting ready to be crucified and then uh, be raised and and leave them. He says this, I will not leave you as orphans. Now we've got not... uh, bride and bridegroom we've got children and parents again another intimate relationship he said I won't leave you as orphans I will come to you yet a little while and the world will see me no more but you will see me because I live you also will live meaning because I have defeated death the day will come when all of you will defeat death and you will live with me forever he says In that day, you will know that I am in my father and you are in me and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, that's the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and I will show myself to him. So you get this idea of chapter 19. I want you to understand why is it using the images it's using? Because it's already been set up all through scripture. So when it comes, you go, I know exactly what they're talking about. Jesus said he would come back. And here he comes. He said that he would, we would be the bride of Christ, and here he comes. Also, the idea of we're not orphans. We'll be brought into God's family. The book of Ephesians talks about us being adopted into God's family. And so there's the sense that God has come to bring the children home. So these images also are very reassuring to Christians in hard times or persecution to know that God loves us as much as a cherished spouse. God loves us as much as a child, as his very own child. And so you get this sense of how much God loves you and that he will not abandon you to the troubles and the trials in which you may find yourself. That makes sense? So it's time in chapter 19 for the marriage of the lamb. Well, as Jesus comes back though, what's going on with the antichrist i mean he's going to come back and take the christians but all of a sudden you got this big old army you've got satan to be dealt with you got the antichrist to be dealt with you have the false prophet and they've been persecuting christians whether you think it's in the last seven years or if you're symbolic all through history evil forces have been persecuting Christians. what are we going to do about them the last you saw them was in chapter 16 and here's what you saw When the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up, why? To prepare the way for the kings from the east. So I'm gonna leave out the different views and just say that everybody understands that the Antichrist has dominated the world and is gonna take all the power of the world focused against God's people. He wants to stamp out God's people. He wants to be God. Satan wants to be God. If only, if he can't be God in the universe, he'd be God amongst these petty little puny humans. And so he brings together all the kings and I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, that's Satan, out of the mouth of the beast, the Antichrist, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, that's the false prophet, three demonic spirits, and they go abroad to the kings of the world, to the empires, to the nations, and assemble them for battle on the great day of God Almighty. The great day of God Almighty in all of the scriptures refers to a day of reckoning, of judgment, of settling up accounts. And so Satan is like, let's gather all my power because we're just gonna, we're gonna confront God right now and we're gonna, I'm gonna battle God. And so, and they assembled all these places that in Hebrew, all these armies is called Armageddon. So I wanna show you where Armageddon is. So what, the word Armageddon comes from a Hebrew phrase, Har Megiddo, the hill of Megiddo. Well, there's a town of Megiddo that's really quite well known throughout all of biblical history. If you are a futurist, You typically take this, meaning this is actually a battle that's going to happen at Megiddo. And all of God's, Megiddo's in Israel, and so against all of God's people, all the forces of the earth are gonna come together to try to stamp them out. And that's where the final great battle will be, the Battle of Har Megiddo, the Battle of the Hill of Megiddo, the Battle of Armageddon. That's the way it comes to us in English. Now, symbolic would say, no, it's not necessarily gonna happen at Megiddo. The reason it's called the Great Battle of Megiddo is there have been so many massive battles there between good and evil. And so it's symbolic of, I don't know where it's gonna be, but there's going to be a great battle between good and evil. So whether you take that as a literal place or not, and most futurists do take it as a literal place. So I thought, I'll show you a little bit about Megiddo. This is modern Israel, because you see the West Bank on there, you see the Golan Heights, this is modern Israel, and Megiddo is just outside the West Bank area. Very easy to visit, very popular site, very famous place. Famous throughout, not just biblical history, way before the history of the Bible. I mean, Megiddo has had battles and civilizations at that city from not just the time of Abraham at 2,000 or Moses at 1,400 BC. It is clearly back into the Canaanite time, 3,000 BC. So this place, and I'm gonna show you why there's so many battles here. This is just a map of Israel. So this is uh, the Sea of Galilee and the Jordan River runs here, and Jerusalem is right down there. It's not on this map, it's just right down there. Megiddo is right here. And this beautiful valley, there's a town of Jezreel here, and it's called the Jezreel Valley because Jezreel was a more famous town. But this valley is called the Jezreel Valley. Notice how nice and smooth it is coming down from here. This is Lebanon in the north. But the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Persians, the Greeks, anybody who's ever wanted to invade this land comes down these nice flat ground. You can march your army right on it. You can see where the mountains are on this map. But for millennia, Armies have marched down here. They would cross the Jezreel Valley and then they would go right down to Jerusalem. And you can march as big an army as you want through that huge valley. I'll show you a picture of it in a minute. Why have there been so many battles here? Because this is where armies can battle. They don't battle in the mountains. You want big battles? You need big, flat area with chariots Can roam where tanks can go. There have been modern battles here, tank battles here as well. You need a big, flat area like this. This has always been the place where great battles uh, have been fought. And Megiddo was built where it was built to be the fortress that controlled this valley. You put troops in Megiddo, you can see, I'll show you a picture in a minute, you can see the whole valley for miles. And this is where your troops would have water and food and everything stored up to fight the enemy. Megiddo has been the site of so many armies fighting so many battles. So now I wanna show you what this town looks like, what Megiddo looks like, but now you can see the, ge- the geography of this is this Jezreel Valley's had so many battles in it. So this is the excavated site of Megiddo, and it's on a hill, and that hill is called a tell because it's not a natural hill per se, but civilizations have been built up. There are more than 30 different cities that have built in this spot. Why? Because it's a perfect strategic spot to build. All the, for 5,000 years, there have been uh, empires and armies here and fought battles there. This is a great place to have a city and a fortress. And the deeper you dig, the older you get. You know, you just get city and then a built on top and built on top, and this is Megiddo. Here are some of the city walls of Megiddo. This is just a portion of these walls. These walls go way up, but this is an extremely well-fortified city. You can see city gates here from the time of Jesus, from the time of Ahab and Solomon, from the time before the Israelites even came. Into this in 1400 BC with Moses, when Canaanites lived here. This city's been fortified, and you can see different city gates through all of those ages. Here is a gate, by the way. So the, you would enter the gate here, these would be the rooms beside the gate. This is the ruins of it. But you get a sense, and think about these walls being much higher, how massive this city was and how massive the fortifications were. Here's a great example is up here. I'm gonna show you some stables in a minute. This is from the time of Ahab. He's a king of the Jews and he lived in 850 BC. He was not a good king. If you know him, you know him because of the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. That's the bad guy, king. But he lived in about 850. Look how far down you go. If you dig down, 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 you see this circular? This is just interesting. Doesn't really have anything to do with Revelation, but this is interesting. So you dig down, you've now gone from 850 BC to about 3000 BC. This is far earlier than when the Israelites came. I don't, I'm not aware of any other round. There may be round in, uh, in the land of Israel, round stone altars, it's huge. And they would sacrifice people Sacrifice animals to pagan gods here long before the Israelites came. And so Megiddo's been there a long time and it's always been a fortified place. These are stables uh, from Solomon's time and Ahab's time. This is a picture of a horse grazing here. But Ahab, I don't know if you know how powerful a king he was. If you did, you would really appreciate how brave Elijah was. Ahab was a serious military king and a serious power he had thousands of chariots, he had cavalry, and uh, you can see how massive when you go there are the stables to house all these horses and chariots and all that he had there. But you can still see the remains of that from the time of Solomon. But here's a great picture just to give you an idea. This is standing on Megiddo overlooking the Jezreel Valley. You can see how broad and huge, I mean, the city on the other side is modern. But you can see the big plain coming down from the north and then you've got this huge Jezreel Valley here before you could then turn south and go to Jerusalem. This valley's been the site of modern battles. World War I, there were battles here. Battles here in the time of Solomon, battles here before kings, we don't even know their names, right? And so the idea of the Hill of Megiddo, it's really talking about the Jezreel Valley, that this is where the great battle. Could it be a massive nuclear tank battle? There's plenty of room here to have a pretty good-sized battle. It could be, and many futurists think the Battle of Armageddon will literally be a battle between the Antichrist and all the kings of the earth, maybe the uh, Islamic forces from Iraq and the Chinese forces from the East and the Russian forces, and everybody's gathered together to attack the people of God. And that's what the battle of Armageddon will be. Others think, no, that is a reference to, so you get the idea, ah, Megiddo, a place of refuge where so many people, evil has come and attacked. The Egyptians have attacked there, the Babylonians, the Romans, all kinds of people have attacked there. So maybe it just means that we will be in a great, we will be witness to a great battle. So however you look at this, you do realize there's gonna be a battle of Armageddon and it's at this time that Christ returns to confront Satan and the Antichrist and the false prophet. Does that make sense? That's kind of what's happening here and that's where it's happening. So you can take Armageddon as a literal place with a literal battle You can take Armageddon as an image that is saying a great cataclysmic battle between good and evil is gonna happen here. So, what happens then? You get the Antichrist and all the kings of the earth gathered together. Then I saw, John says, heaven opened. And look, a white horse. White horse, that's a good sign that you're dealing with somebody righteous, right? The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and he makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. Diadems, uh, that I like the ESV because they translate it diadems. There are two words in Greek for crown. Some of yours will say he has many crowns. A, there's a, a crown of a victor, and then there's a crown, the word is literally a diadem, and it means military power. And whereas Satan has these 10 diadems on his head, he has many diadems, and even beyond, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Well, if you had any doubt before, you now know exactly who this is, right? John chapter one uh, from the New Testament. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Jesus is the word of God, the revelation of God, the speaking of God. This is Jesus' second coming. If you believe in a rapture as a separate event, like say you're a futurist, this is happening at the end of the seven years of the tribulation. And perhaps you would say, well, I believe there'll be a rapture of the saints, all the Christians alive at that time at the beginning of the seven years. That's not the second coming of Christ. Everybody understands this is the second coming of Christ. So some people don't believe that the rapture is a separate event. They believe it's this event. Some believe that, no, there's a rapture where Christ comes into the clouds, and takes the church, the believers, off the earth and takes them back to heaven and then you have seven years of tribulation and then here he comes with the armies of heaven, okay? So that's really the difference in the idea of a rapture. Some people think this is what the rapture's talking about. Others say it's two events. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen white and pure what's that telling you well you know all the how to decode all this now the armies of heaven some people think it's christians but most not uh this is clearly the angelic host what do we have here we have a battle against satan and the demons and his human minions which you'll find out are just not an issue here at all this is the great battle with As Ephesians says, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the forces of evil in the spiritual realms. And so here comes Jesus with the, this is the battle of Armageddon and the armies of angels with him and their white linen or fine linen, white and pure, meaning they're righteous. They're the ones who've been faithful to God. They were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword. That's odd, why would a sword come out of your mouth? with which to strike down the nations. In the New Testament, when you talk about the armor of God, what is the sword? It's the gospel. In Ephesians chapter six, take up the sword of the gospel, the truth, the good news about Jesus Christ. What God says is true, not what Satan says is true, not his lies. And so the, the sword of God is the truth that he speaks the light that comes into the world truth wins out over evil over lies and so why is it coming out of his mouth because this is the truth of god being spoken and it will judge the world people will be judged whether or not do you believe the truth of god or do you believe one of the many lies that satan is telling in the world so he uses this sword to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. That is a, a messianic prophecy. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So, I, well, I'll get back to this in a minute. I want you to hold that thought of Jesus for just a minute because I want to make one comment about this. And then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he called in a loud voice to the birds, and he said, gather for the great supper of God. You will be able to eat the flesh of kings and of captains and of mighty men and horses and riders and flesh of all men, free and slaves, small and great. This is the ultimate trash talk. Okay, so this is an angel saying, that as Jesus and the armies of heaven come and arrayed before us are Satan, Antichrist, all the forces of earth, and the angel comes out and says, hey, birds, you're about to have a great feast because these guys are about to all be dead. They're going to be destroyed by Christ. And so what what I want you to see here, in this chapter, you have two feasts that are happening and you're going to go to one of them. You're either going to go to the wedding feast of the lamb as the bride of Christ, or as a rebel against God, you're going to go to a great supper of God, a great supper for the birds of the air when, we are, when you're destroyed. And so you get this dichotomy. There's always been this idea. Remember Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. You can't serve God and money. He talks about there's a narrow gate And there's a wide path. He talks about we're going to separate the sheep and the goats. In other words, we either are faithful to God or we are one way or another. We think we're serving ourselves or fame or fortune or money or happiness, but we're fundamentally serving Satan and we're rebels against God. And this idea of there are two feasts happening, and the one you want to go to is the marriage, the wedding feast of the Lamb. And so, you get this idea of the two feasts. But a really strong idea here is, and I'll go back uh, uh, here, is remember that image. Now here's the battle, this is the battle of Armageddon. It says, and I saw the Antichrist and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered to make war against Jesus Christ, the one sitting on the horse. And that's the whole battle between that period and that and. The whole battle. I know you're thinking, hey, I got to see Lord of the Rings. Let's roll the footage. You know, we're going to see a big battle. There is no big battle because Satan isn't powerful. He seems powerful to us, but he pales in comparison to God. He's a created being. And literally, this is the Battle of Armageddon. They were arrayed there. What happened? The Antichrist was captured and the false prophet. And these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. In other words, we, we think of this as hell. They were, they were thrown into hell forever. This is the place where disobedient uh, people go. The rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. Now, some people would say this is a literal battle. I, I, I really struggle with that because they're slain by the word of God. That sounds more like God is sovereign and now you're gonna be judged. You're condemned by the very word that you would not believe. So this battle is over like that. The rest were slain by the, uh, by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and all the birds gorged on their flesh. In other words, if you're symbolic, you're gonna look at that and you're gonna say, God is sovereign. And when Satan is arrayed against him, when I'm standing there rebellious, say I'm rebellious against God, It's going to be over just like that the gospel condemns me and i'm doomed and so the the battle of armageddon A couple of interesting things here one is you see jesus as he comes the first coming of jesus christ this is why the jews had such a hard time he comes as a suffering servant he comes born as a little baby weak as you can get He goes to slaughter like a lamb, going to slaughter. He didn't even rebut it. Remember Pilate says to him, won't you say something to me? Don't you know I have the power to kill you? But Jesus didn't answer. And so he goes meekly like a lamb to the slaughter, and then triumphantly, of course, is raised. What does he look like now? He looks like the conquering king who has all the power, the king of kings and the lord of lords. The Jews never could figure out at the time of Jesus when you got prophecies of the Messiah in the Old Testament, like think Isaiah 53, he was a suffering servant. By his wounds we are healed. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and they thought, okay, well the Messiah is going to be a a servant who's going to die in our place. But you have all these prophecies about the Messiah is going to be a conquering king like David. And they really struggled with, well, what's he gonna be? Is he gonna be a suffering servant who dies for us? Or is he gonna be a conquering king? Well, you know what they preferred, right? Jesus comes and they're like, hallelujah, the Messiah's here, conquering king. Hey, go get those Romans and kick them out, would you please? But he's not, he's a suffering servant. And to be fair, if you're a Jew after that and you don't believe in the resurrection, your reasoning might be, well, he's not a conquering king. He didn't fulfill all the prophecies of the Messiah. Does that make sense? Now, many, 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 many Jews did believe because they go, no one can heal like he did, and I saw him after he was dead, or I listened to the witnesses. In other words, many uh, people became believers in Jesus, but the ones that didn't, because a lot of people ask me why do Jews today, for example, who don't believe Jesus is the Messiah, why do they not believe it? Well, there are many reasons but one reason, for, particularly for religious Jews, is Jesus didn't fulfill all of the prophecies. And here's what I want you to, to see. When you go back, what do you see here? I see heaven open, the one sitting on the, horn, on, the, on the horse. His eyes are like flames of fire. He has many diadems. He's got a name written, king of kings and lord of lords. And here comes the whole armies of millions of angels with him. This is a conquering king. And he's not coming to conquer some petty, I know it's not petty to the Christians who were killed by the Roman Empire. He's not. He's got way bigger things going than the Roman Empire. He's gonna conquer the Antichrist and the false prophet. He's gonna conquer Satan and he's going to conquer death. He's got way more on his agenda than conquering an evil empire. They will be judged, but he's got something far greater. And so I want you to get the idea of God is so brilliant in how this prophecy comes true. He is a suffering servant and he is a conquering king. And when you see Jesus again, he will be a conquering king who comes to, to pour out the wrath of God on all those who have done evil, those who aren't. And so you get this idea today, we think, oh Jesus, he was suffering, you serve and he loves me. That's true. And he is a conquering king who will bring justice to the world. And without seeing both of those, you've got to read the Gospel of John and the book of Revelation to really get an image of Jesus. Here's how G.K. Beale says it very well in his commentary. He says, how often do we consider the full biblical picture of Jesus not a little piece of Jesus but let him be everything that he is how often do we consider the full biblical picture of Jesus the mystery is of one who hung defenseless on the cross taking the punishment for our sins and calling us to serve him in weakness yet who one day will ride forth and execute vengeance with us alongside him A true understanding of Christ can only come as we consider all these elements of who he is. And I completely agree with that. And if you're a Christian suffering persecution, there's some comfort that my Lord suffered too. But there's a great comfort to know that my Lord is a risen Lord. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords, and he will do justice on the earth. He will indeed set things right and he will punish the oppressors i think that's a key idea and you need to see the wholeness of jesus in that okay and so finally he says the beast was captured you saw that the antichrist and with him the false prophet who had in his presence had done signs by which he's deceived those who received the mark of the beast Those two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. So this this is our idea of hell. So one of the key things about the battle of Armageddon is the, the Jesus coming as the conquering king. But the most interesting thing about the battle of Armageddon is what doesn't happen in the battle of Armageddon. We don't fight the battle of Armageddon. It's not like, if you're familiar with the Shiite Islamic view of the end times, the Shiite Islamic view of the end times is that the Mahdi is gonna return and Jesus, Issa, is gonna return with him and Jesus will be a Muslim then. And he's gonna return with him and they are going to get an army of all the faithful, right? We're all gonna get our AK-47s, all the Muslims, and you're literally going to go have a battle. And so that that portion of Islamic belief brings an awful lot of violence, right? Because the end is going to be very violent. And all the believers are going to come up and they're going to go fight. And they're going to fight all the unbelievers and kill them all. That's not the battle of Armageddon. We don't fight in the battle of Armageddon. Only Jesus does. And that is also something you see through scriptures. You see the idea that God is fighting for us. Here's a couple of and so you'll see this in the old testament too remember moses and the army of pharaoh moses they're about to cross the red sea and the people go oh no here comes all the pharaoh's army after us we don't even have any weapons what does moses say you may remember this it's in the questions the reference it says just be still god will fight this battle for you and sure enough he does you see with elisha another occurrence in Chronicles, and it talks about, open the eyes of this servant and he sees the angelic host. God will fight this battle for you. Here you see this idea. Jesus says, I have said these things to you that you may have peace. In this world you'll have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. He doesn't say, you're gonna have trouble and you need to overcome evil. It's not what he says. He said, you just be courageous. I have overcome the world. You don't have to fight those battles. So there's a powerful idea that God fights our battles for us. So let me pause there for a second, see what questions we have. Why does God wait so long to destroy Satan? Why does God wait so long to destroy Satan? So a couple of thoughts on this, and these are conjecture. I mean, the scripture will tell you that at just, this is Romans chapter five, at just the right time, Christ died for us. In other words, you get a sense, okay, this is the first coming of Christ, so I'm, I'm gonna answer this question, but I want you to see how the scriptures think about this, how God thinks about it. Why did Jesus come during the Roman time? Why not right after Moses? Let's just spare a 1,000 years, right? Because God has a purpose for what is happening in the world. and. Jesus could come today and you say, great, my life will be better. And God says, look, you trust me. You're going to have eternity with me, but it's not all about you. I have bigger things going. One reason would be, as Peter says, is God is patient, not wanting anyone to perish. And so there's a sense in which God wants more people to be believers and knows that there will be. Remember Jesus when he was talking he said I have many sheep in my flock some of them are here and some of them are not here yet and so Jesus is, needs to gather in all the flock. So the scriptural answer to that would be and again I don't have a lot of details but I'll tell you what the scripture says is God actually has a plan and this is actually working toward a plan not one that I understand. I Christians throughout history have said, it'd be great if you would come today you know, and get us out of this persecution or get us out of this misery and let's end the world right now because we're anxious to get to heaven. But God does have a purpose. Why does he wait so long to destroy Satan? Because in some sense that we do not see, nor could we really, to be honest, God is working a plan and Romans 8, 28 is still true. In all circumstances, God works for the good of those who love him. Not the comfort, not the immediate temporal good, but the eternal good of those who who love him. So that's a great question. God does that at the right time. It is the time for the plan that he has made. And I think a big piece of it is, God. whether you think God predestines or God foreknows, set that aside, but God sees all of history and there are still sheep that haven't been gathered in yet. And so that may very well be one of the reasons good question so god fights our battles for us so then here's the interesting question and this is what i really want to end on what then is our role what are we here for are we here to go fight satan and defeat him no not particularly god will take care of that are, what are we here to do the scripture has two answers to that question one is this just look at several scriptures I'm gonna to put together. Everyone who has been bored of God overcomes the world. How do I overcome the world? What, what is my part? God's gonna fight the battle, but what do I do? Listen, and this is the victory that has overcome the world. He's already speaking in past tense, like this is a done deal. Has overcome the world. What is it? Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? The one who believes that Jesus is the son of God. Interestingly enough, the scripture says that our part in this battle is not to take up weapons and go kill the bad guys, or at the day of Armageddon, let's all go get our guns and go out and help Jesus to fight and defeat Satan. Our our role is every act of faithfulness is another nail in the coffin of Satan. Every time our faith Let me use the word trust, because it's actually a better translation. Every time we trust God, that we are faithful to God, that we say, Satan is tempting me with money, fame, power, whatever, but I'm gonna follow Jesus. Every act of faith is a weapon that has been thrown against Satan. It's a defeat. Every time you're faithful is a little defeat of Satan. Our role is to trust God in every circumstance. And I know that sounds abstract. Well, I'd really like to do more than that. I'd like to punch Satan in the nose, you know, or I'd, I'd like to do something else. And he says, no, actually, that's what your faith is doing. You're, every time you are faithful to God, you are, you are helping to defeat Satan, our faith. And the second thing is, and I, I put more on here, and I've just barely skimmed the surface. This is our role, be faithful, be trusting. And second, endurance. Look at the perseverance, endurance, same word. Uh, Jesus, you will be hated by everyone for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Endurance. And we labor, working with our hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. It doesn't say when persecuted, we go punch Satan in the nose. We endure, we persevere, we endure it faithfully, trustingly. No temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation will also provide the way of escape. Why? So that you may be able to endure it. Again, if we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we're faithless, he's still gonna be faithful because he can't deny himself. But here's the thing. If we endure, we will reign with him. And then last one that I put on here. This is all over your New Testament. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings to us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. I'm gonna translate that. Let us live the lives that we find ourselves in faithfully to God. Let's just commit to live the rest of my life faithfully to God, come what may. That's what this is saying. Let's commit to run the race, live the life that is set before us. Maybe good things, bad things, most likely a mixture, won't it? But let's do it with endurance, looking to Jesus the whole way, eyes focused on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. And he's now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Well, you've seen that in the book of Revelation. So our, every time we trust God, despite circumstances, in the midst of temptation, we are fighting the battle. And I'd like you to think about endurance as this. Endurance is trusting God despite the circumstances. And that's what Christians throughout the ages, and they face some very bad circumstances. If you're in North Korea today and you're found out, you can be killed for your faith. And the idea is they're like, why God? Why do you let me be in North Korea? Why do I risk my life to live out my faith, to be trusting in you instead of trusting in the state or you know, get, taking the mark of the beast, if you will, to use revelation language, why? And the the whole point is, God says, I want you to trust me, and I want you to trust me despite circumstances. That's called endurance. Trusting God in the good, trusting God in the bad, in all circumstances. That's our role. God fights our battles. All he asks for us is believe in me, trust in me, despite the circumstances that you see. Well, I say that like it's a small thing, That's a serious commitment, isn't it? It's a sacrifice of our whole self. It's a laying ourself on the altar. Jesus said it this way in Luke chapter nine. If you wanna be one of my disciples, you need to deny yourself, take up your cross. What does it mean to take up your cross? People die on crosses, right? Take up your cross and follow me. And that is, trust me, despite the circumstances, whether the circumstance is a cross or it's cancer or it's heartbreak, or it's financial thing, despite the circumstances, trust me. That's what we do. We don't pick up a gun and shoot anybody. We endure by trusting God. Does that make sense? That's what the Battle of Armageddon is about. And that's how we win the Battle of Armageddon, is trusting Christ despite circumstances. So I wanna encourage you. I wanna encourage you that you see the evil in this world, and you see the persecution, you see the pressure, you see the hostile environment throughout our world toward God, you feel like it's toward me. It's only toward you because you trust Jesus Christ. If you'll take the mark of the beast, they'll quit bugging you, right? But as long as you follow God, you're gonna feel that pressure. And sometimes it feels like I need to strike back I wanna fight this battle, soldiers of Christ arise. We don't sing that, but it's a great song. But my point is, you are fighting that battle. You have put on the full armor of God, and every act of faithfulness, despite your circumstances, is an act of war, if you will, against Satan. So I wanna encourage you to be warriors for God. And when I say that, I'm not talking about become a suicide bomber and go kill some people, or take a gun and go kill someone. Being a warrior for our God means, I'm gonna be faithful day in, day out, no matter what. And that is fighting the battle against evil. You will overcome evil with good. And that's the battle of Armageddon, and that's what Christ asks of us. So what happened to Satan? Ah, glad you asked. As chapter 20 opens, it says this, and then I saw an angel come down from heaven and he had the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain and he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who's Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while. So, God completely conquers. But Satan isn't destroyed. Satan is bound in the abyss for a thousand years. And as chapter 20 opens, chapter 20 of the book of Revelation is the most argued about chapter in the whole New Testament. And that's where we're going next the great white throne judgment and the millennium, the thousand year reign of Christ and Satan in the abyss. And so we're done with the preterists and the historicists and the futurists and the symbolic view because the tribulation is behind us and now opens up the millennium and an even stronger battle between the premillennialists and the postmillennialists and the amillennialists. And I'll introduce you to them next time. I'll see you guys next week.